Hello, greetings. We're so glad that you've joined us, and we're glad for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ, where disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. And we are in the midst of exploring some of the mountains of Scripture, and we're glad that you've joined us for this part of our conversation. Here in Los Angeles, we're, we're quite aware of mountains. Uh, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but in Los Angeles here, we're surrounded by mountains, the Santa Monica Mountains to our north, the San Gabriel Mountains to our east, and even the tallest buildings in Los Angeles are dwarfed by the height of the San Gabriels. And so we, we are familiar with mountains and uh, how majestic they are, and yet how, in many ways, they're somewhat terrifying. Uh, maybe you live around mountains and you can identify, or maybe you live in an area that has no mountains and it seems rather strange. Uh, but they tower above humanity, and where they are, they remind us of our smallness, they remind us of the greatness of the God who made them. In Job, Job 40, verse 4, and Isaiah 35, 1 and 2, and Romans 1, 18 through 20. In Isaiah there, when uh, Isaiah speaks of the majesty of God and the things he's, he's doing, he invokes the names of mountains. Sacredness is also very frequently associated with mountains because of the highest point of land, and thus, in logically, in somebody's head, the closest place you can get to the heavens. The pyramids in Egypt were built, so it is said, to help the soul of the Pharaoh ascend to heavens. In Israel, both Canaanites and Israelites frequently made offerings to Yahweh or other gods on what are called the Bemote, which are high places. And these would be mountains or hills or whatever would be the ge highest geological feature of the land. We see this in Deuteronomy 12, 2, 1 Kings 3, 2, and 3. Solomon in that instance in chapter 14, verses 22 through 24. Uh, whether you live around mountains or whether you don't, it, it cannot be denied that mountains shape and define the land of Israel. And Israel is actually a pretty small land. It's, it's, it's about 100 miles from top to bottom or so. It's not as large as many people would imagine it would be. At uh, mountains define its existence. Uh, the Jordan River and the Dead Sea uh, are part of the Great Rift Valley, and it features some of the lowest elevations in the world. And so, since it has such low elevations, it means that on both sides, on the east side, on the Transjordan side, uh, it rises up into mountain ranges. On the west side, what we call the hill country of Ephraim and Judah, so frequently seen in the Old and New Testaments, are in fact the hill, the uh, rising mountains uh, above the uh, Jordan River, and also tower over the plains that lead to the sea. The uh, Antilebanon Mountains are the northwest boundary of Israel, and they hem in the cities of Tyre and Sidon, and explain why the Phoenicians uh, were seafarers, otherwise they would have had no means by which to uh, feed themselves. And so Israelites live on or near mountains. In fact, there is no point in Israel that you would not be able to see mountains uh, in the distance. And so mountains were always a defining feature of the land. And there's a lot about mountains in Israel's devotional literature. They praise Yahweh for his strength and his power over the mountains and valleys and deserts of the land. We see this prominently in the Psalms. Psalm 29, 42, 89, 133, and many other places. And, by necessity, mountains feature prominently in biblical history. Mount Moriah, 
which would also be later known as Zion. It's where Abraham offers Isaac, where David made sacrifice, where Solomon first built, built the first temple, excuse me. The second temple would be built there as well in Genesis 22, 2 Chronicles 3, and Ezra 3. On Mount Sinai, or Horeb, Yahweh speaks with Moses, and the law is given, and Elijah seeks refuge there in Exodus 3, 19, and 1 Kings 19. Mount Hor and Nebo are the mounds where Aaron and Moses respectively die. And uh, Moses sees Canaan from the top of Mount Nebo, Numbers 20 and Deuteronomy 34. In Mounts Ebal and Gerizim, or where the law is read in Joshua 8, the curses from Ebal and the blessings from Gerizim. On Mount Tabor, Israel defeats Sisera in Judges 4, and is believed that Jesus was transfigured there in Luke chapter 9. Mount Carmel is where Elijah defeats the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. The Mount of Olives is where Yahweh would stand on a day of judgment in Zechariah 14, where Jesus would pray and ascend in Matthew 26 and Acts chapter 1. Now Golgotha, Calvary, is where Jesus would be crucified in Matthew 27. And so for our conversation today, why don't we consider Mount Carmel? What is Mount Carmel? Why was it important to Israel? And what happened there? What can we gain from it? Mount Carmel is kind of a misnomer because it's really the Carmel Mountain Range. Carmel in Hebrew means God's vineyard. And the Carmel Range rises above Megiddo and the Jezreel Valley. And this is in northwest Israel. And it extends 24 miles as it abuts into the Mediterranean Sea in northwestern Israel. And so if you can imagine the the kind of, the curved somewhat curved uh, boundary between Israel and the Mediterranean Sea. At one point it curves, and it seems nice, gentle curve, but then it kind of uh, lines fairly straight, but then it curves around. Where it curves around up in the north, that is where Mount Carmel is. And you can see that also on a map, if you have a map available. Uh, at its highest in the Carmel Range is 1,724 feet which, compared to other mountains in Israel and in the area, are not, is not that high, but has to be realized that this is an area that is normally a seaplane, a plane next to the sea, and so uh, an elevation of 1,700 feet is very prominent uh, in an area that is mostly near, nearer to sea level. In fact, the modern city of Haifa is on the northernmost slope of Carmel. And so Mount Carmel's prominence in the site of the Plain of Sharon and the Jezreel Valley lead to a lot of associations of Carmel with a form of majesty or authority. In fact, many of the scattered references to Carmel in the Bible refer to this kind of uh, metaphorical illustration. In Song of Solomon chapter 7 and verse 5, the, uh, the, the male says to the female, um, your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held ha captive in the tresses. So there, it's uh, this kind of uh, crown. In Isaiah 35, prophet Isaiah, when speaking, declares, that the wilderness and dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of Yahweh, the majesty of our God. So there, the idea of the majesty of Carmel, uh, compared to Sharon, the plan of Sharon, 
beneath it and the glory of Lebanon in parallelism. In Jeremiah chapter 46 and at verse 18, there's a prophecy that one would come like Carmel by the sea. Jeremiah chapter 46. verse 18 um, this is actually a warning to Egypt that indeed uh, the one whose name is Yahweh of hosts like Tabor by the mountains like Carmel by the sea shall one come and so they are prominent features that are there but uh, there's also many times where Mount Carmel is associated with agricultural productivity to some degree and, and actually it's normally in the negative one of the prophetic warnings that we see in Isaiah 33 and verse 9 Amos 1 and verse 2 and Nahum 1 and verse 4 is that when God comes in judgment Carmel withers and so the idea is if Carmel withers at that moment then normally Carmel is not withering but in Jeremiah 15 verse 19 uh, in that prophetic moment Jeremiah gives hope to Israel that they would again be fed on Carmel that there would be food uh, to be made there uh, we said that the monastery of Haifa was on Mount Carmel, but it doesn't seem that Mount uh, Carmel was as inhabited in the ancient world. Uh, it is a sacred place to some, and it is seen as this place of refuge in other passages. Uh, even to the Egyptians, uh, it might be called the, it might be what Thutmose III is referring to as the Holy Headland in the year 1470. Uh, for comparison, Thutmose III is often considered the Pharaoh of the Oppression in the book of Exodus. Uh, in Deuteronomy 12 and verse 2, uh, talking about the high places, uh, that's no doubt a high place in the, of the Canaanites and probably explains what's going on in 1 Kings 18 that we're going to spend more time discussing. Uh, in, in 1 Kings 18 and verse 30, Elijah said that there was an altar to Yahweh there that had been torn down and that he had to uh, build it back up. It is noted in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 25, and chapter 4, verse 25, that Elisha the prophet takes refuge on Carmel. And then he takes up residence there as if he's taking refuge there. And in Amos chapter 9 and verse 3, we have another reference there that uh, Carmel is a place where they might flee for refuge. So Mount Carmel is a place where fertility, majesty, and the sacred meet. And that's important to keep in mind. From all of these various scattered examples, we see that there's majesty there. It seems to be a place of fertility where there's crops. It seems to be a sacred place. It's not as inhabited. It's not very densely populated. Uh, and that is going to all feature into the big story where Carmel is featured in the days of Ahab, king of Israel, in 1 Kings 17 and 18. To understand what's going on, we have to first understand the characters. In 1 Kings 16, 19, and 31, Ahab, the son of Amri, becomes king of Israel, and he had married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of Sidon. And the king's author there notes that uh, it was like a, a little thing for Ahab to walk in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel to sin, that he went far further than Jer uh, the Jeroboam had ever gone, that he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, that he built in Samaria, and he made an Asherah. And he had done more to provoke Yahweh, God of Israel, anger than any of the kings that had come before him. And so because of that, in chapter 17, there's a prophet named Elijah the Tishbite who arises, and he declares that as Yahweh lives, there would be no dew or rain except by his word. And so for three and a half years, there was no rain. And this, of course, is a direct challenge, because Baal is a storm god. And so Baal is God, he should be able to bring the rain, but for three and a half years, it did not rain. During that time, Elijah wanders in the area of the Transjordan. He ultimately takes up residence with a widow of Zarephath. 
Uh, and then in chapter 18, Elijah tells Obadiah, the, the servant of God, that he is going to appear before Ahab. And so we see the confrontation between Ahab and Elijah in verse 17 of chapter 18. Where Ahab sees Elijah and says, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Thinking that Elijah has caused all his problem. But Elijah says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of Yahweh and have followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So he is setting up what's going to happen on Carmel. Everybody should come. All Israel should come. And these prophets of Baal and Asherah, these Canaanite god, Canaanite god and goddess that Israel is now serving. And so Ahab sends and gathers everybody to Carmel in verse 20. And in verse 21, Elijah sets forth what's going to happen. How long will you go limping between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. People stayed quiet. So Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am the prophet, left the prophet of the Yahweh. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you will call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered and thought, it's well spoken. So this is the context. It's going to be a good idea. Whatever God brings forth fire, that is truly God. And so this contest is on. And so uh, the prophets of Baal go first. And they prepared it. They call upon the name of Baal from morning till noon. They cry, oh, Baal, answer us. And as the king's author comments, there was no voice and no one answered. It's dead silence. And Elijah began mocking them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Maybe he is uh, musing or relieving himself, or he's on a journey. Maybe he's asleep, and you need to wake him up. Of course, it's all mockery and sarcasm. They cry aloud. They cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances. Blood gushes out upon them. The midnight passed, and they raved on until the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, the king's author tells us. No one answered. No one Paid attention. And we're left with the implication of what that means. So Elijah then tells the people to come to him. And he'll come to him. He repairs that altar of Yahweh that we had mentioned in verse 30. He took twelve stones according to the tribes of of Jacob, sons of Jacob. And he built an altar in the name of Yahweh. He made a trench around the altar. And it was very great. It would contain... 14 quarts of seed. And he put wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces. And he tells them to pour ultimately 12 jars of water on the offering and on the wood. And it it filled the trench around the altar. So everything is quite moist, quite wet. And that when the time for the offering came, Elijah prayed, O Yahweh God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, 
Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. At that moment, in verse 38, the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and looked up the water that was in the trench. And it was undeniable. All the people cried out. They fell on their faces. Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. And as a result, Elijah made sure that all the prophets of Baal and the Asherah were, were seized. They were seized. Elijah brought them down and slaughtered them. At that time, Elijah prayed and rain was restored. Yes, in chapter 19, Jezebel would threaten Je- uh, Elijah's, threaten his life to be as the life of the prophets that he had killed. He flees the Sinai, but it is all in vain for Jezebel, as we see. And the rest of First Kings and Second Kings chapters one through ten, that Jezebel, Ahab, the whole Amorite clan will be exterminated within fifty years. All the servants of Baal will be killed, and Yahweh service will again be ascendant in Israel. And so at Mount Carmel, a place that is sacred, a place of fertility, a place of refuge, Israel was made to see that Yahweh was God, that He was their creator, He was their sustainer, He was their provider. He was the one who brought the rains. He is the one who has made the fields fertile. He is the one to whom Israel must turn to refuge. And Baal did not exist. So what can we learn from Mount Carmel? Well, the hope that we can see on Mount Carmel, what, what, what precipitated this contest on Mount Carmel? That Israel continued to persist in idolatry. They gave the glory, honor, and reverence that was due to Yahweh their God to those who were not real gods. In fact, the king's author in 2 Kings 17 will go through a long discussion of how it is because Israel did not serve Yahweh the way that he had established, but instead had served uh, the two golden calves and Dan and Bethel, that all the, of the difficulties leading to the Assyrian exile had come upon them. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 2 through 6, that's how Zechariah begins his prophecy, uh, talking about how their fathers had refused to listen to Yahweh, their God, and had followed after other gods. Now we, in modern-day America, live in a different place, a different time, a different culture, and we might be tempted to think that we are somehow less liable to idolatry. And yet we can read in Matthew 6 and verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In Ephesians 5 and verse 3, Colossians 3 and verse 5, Apostle Paul identifies covetousness as idolatry. And in 1 John 5 verse 21, John ends his letter by telling Christians, little children, guard yourselves from idols. It is not because we bow down to actual statues that... uh, Jesus and the apostles are concerned. No, but we can see in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 25, when people no longer honor God as their creator and their foolish hearts are darkened and they become futile in their reasonings, they don't give God thanks, but instead they serve the creation with the honor due to the creator. Yes, we see in the ancient world that pagans would imagine natural forces and desires as gods and they'll make statues of them and bow down to them. We don't make those statues, but we still serve forces and the desires as a controlling influence of life. Money, sex, fame, food, nation, self, science, etc. And thus, we are just as tempted to idolatry as they. And that is why 
at various points in our lives were in a way called to our Mount Carmel, to have our Mount Carmel moment. When we are called, as Elijah called Israel, to stop limping between two opinions. That if Yahweh is a creator God, and he is God, we should serve him. If not, we should serve whoever is the true God. Now it's true that we should not necessarily expect fire from the sky to show us the way forward. In fact, in Revelation chapter 13, that's a way that the false prophet uh, deceives some of the nations. But, what happens must be consistent with what we see in Romans chapter 1. How can we make the best sense of who we are? How we have gotten here? Who's in charge? And who's been there for us? So, we have these Mount Carmel moments when we're first confronted with the gospel message and the choice to follow God and Christ or the ways of this world. When we hear the gospel of Christ, are we going to believe that God has acted powerfully in Christ? Are we going to continue to believe uh, whatever we have believed beforehand? We have our Mount Carmel moments when we are tempted to pursue the gods of this world by our culture, by our parents, by our educators, maybe even our friends or our own spouse, our own mind, or our lusts. If we are being deceived by the God of this world, the evil one, in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, and all the temptations of the world in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, are we going to serve the desires of our lusts for making extra money, for uh, satisfying sexual desires in ways that are inappropriate, uh, are we going to put uh, education or work or other priorities above our commitment to God in Christ? Are we going to continue to limp between these opinions? We also have a Mount Carmel moment when we experience moments of existential doubt in the face of crisis. Uh, if we experience evil, suffering, illness, or loss. When we're confronted with our own mortality and the mortality of those whom we love. We're asked if we're going to continue to limp between opinions. Are we going to serve Yahweh, put our trust in Him, recognizing that He has the ability to redeem us in Jesus and with hope of the resurrection and hope that there will be something better in the future through Jesus? Or will we uh, turn to the darkness and despair of the world where there is no real confidence, real hope, real meaning uh, beyond just living according to the flesh? So what happens when we have these, these moments? And these moments come at any time we're tempted to make anything other than Yahweh to be God. Well, we, we need to put these other gods that we might serve to the test, just like Elijah exhorted Israel to put Baal and Yahweh to the test. What are we going to get as a result from these disputants? If we put money, or sex, or drugs, or fame to the test, what are the responses? going to be there's going to be silence because how can these things truly satisfy what happens if when the time comes as the preacher speaks of in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 when we can no longer feel pleasure who's going to be there for us then if we put ourselves science our nation or other secular gods to the test what will be the response can they go beyond the material causes of things and explain why we as humans take pleasure in beauty and have impulses toward morality? Can we trust these things to be authorities for everything in life and they're profitable no matter what? Will their answers be effective for a first century Roman or a medieval European or African as they would be for us? What if we have put other religious views to the test? What will be the response? 
Can they really explain the beauty of the creation, the corruption that happened because of sin, and extend a hope that is consistent with both the promise and the disappointment that we experience in this life today? We see great beauty, we suffer great tragedy. How can both of those be made sense of at the same time? Can the religions yet maintain a strong sense of justice and righteousness, but express love and mercy and grace as the preeminent virtues? Can we see evidence of the handiwork of these gods and the majesty of the creation and in our nature if we have been made anything like them? For that matter, if we put doctrines of other groups in Christianity to the test, what will be the response? Can these views make sense of what God has revealed about himself and in Christ and Scripture? Or does it emphasize some elements to the detriment of others? Do they maintain the mark of authenticity according to what the apostles have taught? Are they able to be seen or made understandable in terms of what Christians in the first century would have understood? Or do they reflect the attitudes and culture and issues of a later time? And how many times when we put these different ideas to the test do we see what happens as what happened on Carmel? Where no one answers. Where there is no voice. Where no one pays attention. Because nothing is there. Meanwhile, in all of this, Yahweh, our Creator God, our Father who sent His Son to the world and through the Spirit made known His truth, is still there. He has made good things on earth to be appreciated and enjoyed in their proper context. In 1 Timothy 4, verses 4-5. through 5. In Christ He has revealed these great truths, affirming justice and righteousness while remaining lo- full of love and grace and mercy. He has made all things as good, yet they were corrupted by sin. In love, He provides for the restoration and reconciliation of all things to Himself through Jesus. In His death and resurrection, Romans 5, 6-11, chapter 8, 1-3, verses 17-25. Through Christ and the Spirit, the Father continues to strengthen, sustain, and nourish His people, individually and collectively as a church, in 1 Corinthians 3, 14, 16, 6, 19, and 20. And in the beautiful prayer of Ephesians chapter 3, Verses 14 through 21, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, which should be our prayer today. That for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is a breath and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And in the creation we can see the hand of a powerful creator God. In our search for relationship and how those relationships work, we see the image of the three in one and the one in three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in relational unity, expressing love among himself and for his creation in humility and service. Matthew twenty, twenty five through twenty eight, John seventeen, twenty through twenty three, according to Romans one eighteen through twenty. And in Jesus we have the hope of resurrection that there will be a setting to right all that's gone wrong with sin and death. And because of that, we can stand firm. Romans 8 and 1 Peter chapter 1. And so we can have confidence that Yahweh will be declared God in any such contest. For everything that's opposed to Him has no standing before Him, because He who is with us is greater than He who is in the world. 1 John 5 verse 4. 
Mount Carmel towers majestically over Sharon and Jezreel, a place, sacred and fertile place of refuge. And it was a place where Elijah called upon Israel to decide, is Yahweh God or is Baal God? Yahweh proved faithful. Yahweh was declared to be the true God. In our lives, we're going to have our own Mount Carmel moments, where we're going to have to decide and stop limping between two opinions. Will we maintain our trust in Yahweh as our creator, our sustainer, our provider, and our savior in Jesus Christ? We do well to affirm Yahweh as the one true God, our Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and ever seek to advance His purposes. To affirm that He is the one true God, do all things according to His name. We're so glad that you've joined us again, and if we can be of any service to you, if you have any questions or comments, if you'd like to talk further about this, or maybe you'd like to talk about another subject, uh, maybe you have a prayer request or just need to talk. If there's any way that, that I can be of service, please contact me through my website, deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Maybe you'd like to learn more about the ministry of Christ, or check us out. You can find us online at ministrychrist.org, and we're also on many forms of social media. We again thank you. Have a great day.